0: Prepare thine ears, prepare thine bum, for the Things We Think About
1: podcast has come. Now for your hosts, Kenny and Aaron.
0: All right, well, hello, everybody. This is uh, Things We Think About, episode four. Um, I'm here with Kenny. How's it going, Kenny? Hello, everyone. Good to be back. We got a special guest, Cameron, who's with us, and we're going to be talking about uh, deconversion some of you may recall from listening to our prior episodes. I think it was our first episode. We got a little bit into what we would like to do as far as the podcast and deconversion was something that me and Kenny both uh, share and think is important to to talk about and religion in general, but especially deconversion because it's a, a whole you know process it can be a whole uh, a whole thing depending on where you're from. So um, today we're going to interview Cameron and hopefully. Uh, we'll have you know others to interview soon. So, so how's it going, Cameron?
1: Good. Thanks for the invite. Um, I'm looking forward to it.
0: So, Cameron, uh, just to kind of start off, um, where did you grow up? Uh, what church, uh, religion, etc.?
1: Yeah. So I grew up um in the LDS faith, uh, which most people know by Mormonism or Mormons, um, up in Washington State um and kind of uh, born into it right my family's 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 family has all been mormon back to you know the the founders of the church really um so that was kind of the life i was born into and and kind of just followed along and believed that and followed it and worked on it all the way up until i was uh until i was an adult shortly after high school
0: nice so uh, that's about when you deconverted from it or was it uh was it a little after that before that
1: there was an overlapping of time between you know, kind of bl- blindly following something and saying, this is what my family does, and this is what I'm expected to do. Um, and, and then up until the point where, you know, I was a couple years out of high school, and there's that transition window for me where I didn't really ask the questions, but I knew that uh, things weren't aligning in my head. And, and um, so I'd say I officially was, you know, flat out um, atheist, maybe in my early 20s, 23, maybe-ish.
2: So how long have you been away from the faith? I'm 39 now. So a good long time. So, was there any point that you were, uh, you know, totally bought in intellectually, emotionally? You know, were you a, a true believer?
1: Oh, abs- absolutely! Um, you know, you start going uh, in the Mormon Church, and I don't know. You know, we can go into any parts of that that you'd like to know about, because uh, you know, I was, a, I, I was working on my mission. Obviously, you know, um, missionaries for the Mormon Church go go out for two years of their of their young young adult life, usually eighteen or nineteen. They've changed the dates in the last few years, but or the uh, the age limit. I think they bumped it up a year now. It's 19 when you go, and 19 to 20 or something. But back in the day, whenever you turn 19 um, or 18, you would go on your mission for your church for two years, and they would send you somewhere randomly in the world. I mean, you could be sent to you know, Brazil, or you could be sent to um, Oregon or Utah. And that was something that I was really excited about, something I spent a lot of time researching and was extremely passionate about. And, and, and if you have a second, I'll tell you a story about my faith and how it at how serious it was to me during that um, stage in my life where I was getting ready to to go on my mission and, and what happened there. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, I've, I've heard that's a really big part of the whole Mormon process. So, please. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, I should say that um, by the time I got to, you know, 17 or 16 or 17, um, I was living a, a standard Mormon life, you know, with my Mormon family. Um, I would go to church, you know, a handful of times a week. It would be three hours every Sunday. It would be for an hour um, every morning before school. They called it seminary. And then for um, something called mutual, which happened every, uh, every Wednesday um, for a couple hours. So church took up a large part of your life. And I didn't really question it. But I was also your typical high school kid, which at the time, you know, meant uh, I didn't really drink alcohol or have problems with that. What would be considered extremely inappropriate for the Mormon church, like the sexual parts of what you could or couldn't do at that age or any time in your life was, that's where I kind of um, had problems with myself. Um, so there was a lot of, I wanted to say um, two things real quick. One, I really love the people of the LDS church, even to this day, even though I'm, I'm atheist. And um, they were really, really good people. They're still good people to me. And I still have a lot of friends that are still LDS that I just love dearly that I work with, as well as that are in my um, my immediate family. Um, so no bad things to say about that. There were no weird situations that happened. But you are raised in the LDS um, faith. Um at least I was, to feel extremely guilty for things that I think everybody does as a kid, right? Everything from, you know, masturbation to stealing a candy bar once to, you know, um, touching a girl's boobs or, you know, anything like that growing up from the ages of like really young, like eight or seven years old up until you were Mm -hmm. late in high school. Those were things that you're very, very, very cautious about. And um, one thing that was interesting about how that worked in the Mormon church is you had to go talk to your bishop which is the guy who ran your local branch your local church um you know whenever you had to get things off your chest or kind of like a confession but it's slightly different um it's always a male it's always a male the bishop's always male um and you know you go and start talking to the bishop really young. I mean, I was in there at eight years old, you know, talking to them all throughout high school. And they would ask yeah. you questions. It was just you and the bishop. And I loved my bishop to this day. He was a great guy, nicest guy, never never anything inappropriate, nothing like that. But you know, they ask you direct questions about, you know, do you masturbate? Do you do anything with girls? You know, do you do drugs? Do you do alcohol? I mean, it's a very, very um private conversation that you have, right, with this with this leader. And it, it quickly instills the fear of God into you where it's like, Oh man, I, I, I I mean, usually you lie your whole way through it. You're just like, no, I don't do any of that stuff. You crazy, you know, but you're really doing those things. Um, So I grew up in the Mormon faith feeling extremely guilty about what, what i was doing even though being an adult now and looking back and having kids of my own you realize that that's just like that's normal kids stuff and that was one of my major problems as an adult looking back on the religion is the feeling of guilt that shouldn't really be there whenever humans are just being humans you know that was one of my big complaints
0: yeah that sounds that really does sound extremely personal because certainly in my faith experience i was non-denominational protestant we had the inclination or the idea out there was like well like you just said, the the small morality stuff, don't know sex before marriage, masturbation is bad, you know, sin is sin, et cetera. But we never had any exact, at least I didn't have any exact follow up. So it sounds like mm. you had a really, you had a very personal experience that was uh, not only backed up by scripture uh, mm-hmm. or teachings, but you had a person in your life kind of slapping the hands.
1: Yeah. And the same person, that same guy was obviously talking to my brothers and my sister and, and even my parents, you would go talk to, even if you were an adult, and you were having um, relationship issues with your wife, very personal. Someone cheated on someone or you're having problem with alcohol and you're not, you would still go sit down with this bishop and you would, he, he he was almost like a counselor, but not trained in counseling, just to your leadership of the church. But yeah, that was, um that was interesting. But though, but as far as my faith goes and, and how strong it was whenever I was young, um, as I started getting older and kind of just lying your way through those interviews so you don't get in trouble and feeling extremely guilty for all that stuff, um, by the time I started getting close to 18, you have to start preparing for your mission if you're going to do it. And this isn't something that's mandatory. Some LDS or Mormons don't do this. Um, they don't go on their missions at all, and some do. But I wanted to. It's kind of been in the history of my family, and, and it was something that was important to me. So up until that point, I hadn't really read any of the scriptures of the Mormon Church, right? Anything that had to do with um, the LDS sect, I was I knew about from my family, and you knew the simple stories. And if people that don't aren't familiar with the LDS sect, it would be like knowing the story of Noah, mm-hmm. right, or Moses parting the Red Sea from the uh, from the Old Testament or the New Testament and the Old Testament. Those stories were they have stories just like that in the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price, the three books that make up the the mormon's faith um and i didn't know any of them other than the the fun friendly kids stories right but as i started to get older and thinking oh man I, I have to go on a mission and teach these things to other people i started jumping into these scriptures and it brought up questions and all this other stuff now um at one point in the mormon church whenever you're getting ready to go on your mission you have to go through three interviews you have to go through um a, an interview with your bishop the gentleman i talked to you about already um he asked you all similar questions that i just asked you about are you worthy of going and don't have any sin on you to go on his mission. Um, The second one is his boss, which they don't call him a boss. It's your, the next level president. And then the third one would be your, your, your mission president. So you have three interviews before you can get the approval to say, yes, you're worthy to go on a mission. So interview one, I lied my way through the whole thing. I was like, nah, I've never done any of that. I don't got anything to repent for. And let's go, let's, Mm -hmm. let's do this. Number two did the same thing. But this is where it was starting to get to. I had one more interview, and they're going to ship me off to somewhere in the world, right? And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is getting serious. And I don't really have a testimony of this church. I have my parents' testimony of this church, which is still strong, but not, you know, I need my own. So I went and talked to my dad, who loved the guy to death, still LDS to this day. And I said, hey, is it, do you feel it's okay to you know, go on a mission and teach others without having your own personal um, truth or faith about, about God and Jesus and and specifically the Mormon church and all that. And, and, and kind of basically, can I go to my mission and and find those things Mm -hmm. there? Or, or should I have those things prior to leaving? And my dad said, well, you know, have you ever prayed before? Have you ever, you know, uh, sat down, you know, folded your arms and prayed out loud to God and asked him these questions? And I was like, well, absolutely not. You know, it almost seemed embarrassing, you know, to be talking out loud in a room to, to Jesus. So, um, I said, no, I haven't. And he said, well, I'd recommend you do that and ask him Mm -hmm. these questions. I go one night. My mom's gone from the house. My mom and my dad were divorced at this time. I was at my mom's house. Uh, everybody was gone. I went back into the back room. I I I got on my hands and knees and I and I put my hands you know in front of my face and and I I honestly opened up my heart and basically said you know in the gist of it is not only is is religion true but is the Mormon Church the true religion and these are the same questions you learn as a Mormon growing up that jo- uh, Joseph Smith asked. Um, God as well, God and Jesus, in in, in the Grove in, in New York. Whenever he was having these same questions mm-hmm. as a kid, um, there are scriptures that walk through his story, and it was you know similar how he felt. So I I made I said this prayer, and I remember clearly with my hands you know bowed and praying, and I said, "Is this is the Mormon Church the true Church? And if it is, you know, give me a sign, basically." And Immediately, I was field, filled with, a, with, that, with that burning beauty that people talk about, that still small voice, that, um, that confirmation of feeling that you get whenever you know that your church or your God is, is speaking to you through emotion or feeling. Um, and I felt that 100 percent, tears welled up in my eyes, and you know I was probably 17, 18 wow. at the time, um, preparing for this mission, and I left that, you know, rock, rock and roll ready to go. I was like, this is, this is what I need. I started reading the Book of Mormon. I started memorizing the scripture. I started um, the scriptures. I started becoming really serious with getting ready for this. But remember, I'd only, I had only gone through two of the, of the actual uh, interviews mm-hmm. at this point, right? So for the third interview, I decided now that I have this faith that I was looking for, this confirmation the Mormon church was true, I need to go into my third interview, and I got to lay it all on the line. I got to tell them everything that I've done. Um, and it really sucked because the bishop of the time, uh, the the girl that I was uh, sexual with, was his uh, daughter. So it didn't help <laughs> oh, me any of this conversation okay. at all. Yeah, and I I can I know I kept it generic, but uh, you know still. Um, and so I basically went in and said, "These are all the problems I have. I'm going to lay it all on the line. I've had drinks of beer, and it was nothing. Th- this is nothing. I mean, there was nothing I can even recall as details other than." You know, I touched some girls that I shouldn't. Of course, I I masturbate. I've stole two things in my life. You know, these things that everybody has done or it's not uncommon, let's say. And um, he said he was very cool, but he said, okay, well, now that we're hearing about this late, you know, and it's close to the time you're going on your mission, um, we're actually going to have to put a hold on your mission and we're going to we're going to have it pushed out a, a year. And in the course of this 12 months we don't want you to um, bless the sacrament, which is a thing you do before you go on your mission, pretty much um, after you're about, uh, it's been a while, but from the, I think it's around 14 years old-ish, you, uh, whenever you're in your congregation, you, you pass the sacrament, which is equivalent to the blood in, of Jesus Christ and in the, in the flesh and all that. And you, you're the guy that's up, up in front of the congregation blessing that food. And you do that as a kid, kind of giving you, know, you more responsibilities in the church. So he said, you can't do that anymore he put a curfew on my personal life. So he said, you know, you can't be out past 830 at night, and it was summertime, you know. Um, he said, you know, you got to do these things, blah, 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 blah. You can't pray during this. You know, just little things that weren't extremely crushing to me. But also, I realized, oh my gosh, this thing that I really want to do right now, this, this I'm, I'm going to be a year, year and a half out again from from going to, to take care of all these things. And yeah, that, that was where... The Kind of the fork in the road happened. And it didn't happen because I felt jaded or upset um, at what the bishop told me I could or couldn't do. I, I was okay with all those things. But what it gave me the opportunity to do is start asking some real questions in between that time, things that I really wanted answers on. And that kind of goes into where I started, um, you know, thinking about college, hammering out some credits, um, writing papers and doing stuff. kind of diving into things that, that were interested in me, researching things like anthropology, culture, and where people have come from, and and, 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 and how many and statistics, you know, you start learning about, you know, space. And, and I took a couple astronomy courses, you start learning about, the trillions of galaxies and stars and you start putting things together in your mind. At least I did about like probability, mm-hmm. right. And what is the probability of, of me being, um, in the 1920s, this Joseph Smith dude, you know, seeing a spirit and that's all of a sudden, you know, out of the 40,000 researched religions we know about, what, what is the chance that's the right one. And that's kind of where that little, um, crack happened in my, in my, you know, in my story. Um, and that, one of the real eye openers, though, the, one of the things that happened where I really looked at it differently was taking an English course where I did a um, paper on the paper. You know, we were, it was English 201, I believe, and we were doing papers on uh, I wanted to do my religion. And um, I'll skip through a ton of the, the boring details, but what the gist of it was, was I had a paper that I wanted to ask random people in random, re- not random uh, religions, but I had a set of maybe 20 religions. So, of course, all the. Um, the Catholic Christian sects, like Mormonism and Jehovah Witnesses, and you know um, mm. Lutherans, and you know all the all the ones that believe in God and Jesus, Jewish. But I also grabbed some crazy ones, like Satanism, um, uh, some Hawaiian religion that worship pineapples. Oh, you know, but I, I mean, I got I got into some really, you know, it, obviously Islam and, and things like that. I got I just wanted to cover a wide range, and, and I had to find people that were these religions. So I found a whole bunch of people. And I asked him a series of questions and out of the 10 questions that I asked him, there was really only one, the the other questions were kind of like interesting questions for me that I wanted to ask, but there was one that I was going to compare against and and analyze. And that one question on the list, I remember it was question like four and it was, and this was the question. Remember crossing all these denominations and beliefs, whenever you pray to your God, be that Jesus um, at the privacy of your home or with your wife, or be that, um islam and you you know point your rug to the east or the, uh, and do the thing three times a, a, a day or or if you're satan and you're uh, bowing to the upside down star and you're talking to him or when, whatever it is that you're doing whenever you pray to your god what is the feeling that you get inside that makes you know that what you're doing is right or that that he's confirming that you're you're on the right path spiritually and every single one of those was almost exactly mm-hmm. the same, the exact same feeling that a uh, that I had. Per- then, then I thought, well, geez, that's how I felt whenever I prayed at my mom's house. You know, like the same steel small voice and that and that blooming of warmth inside you and and whatnot was the same. No matter if you were worshiping Satan or a pineapple or right. Islam or or nothing or a rock, it didn't matter. It was the same confirmation that they were getting. And um, you know, I've been talking forever here, but uh, just to finish that thought out the very next the very next thing that i went into is was like psychology and then you start learning about how you know your brain wants to your your psyche wants to answer questions for you that can solidify an idea or a thought you're unsure about to give you that peace and 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 religion is an example but meaning whenever i went to pray and i w- and i went to sit on my mom's you know and cross my arms and, and pray and ask if this, if the Mormon religion was the true religion, I, my psyche had already, this is what I believe. I believe my psyche had already told me what I wanted mm-hmm. as an answer. It didn't want to say, no, dude, you're being an idiot. You're praying to something that's not here and, and you should feel ashamed of yourself. And I walk away feeling guilty. Uh, that's not what I, that's not what my psyche, my psyche wanted. Uh, I, you know, so from a psychology perspective, I felt that, um, you know, after, after taking some courses in that, I felt this is kind of what a body or a brain does to confirm for you what you want to be mm-hmm. true. And it makes sense whenever you start looking at it from the perspective of all these other people praying to all these other things, getting the same exact feeling. And and um, my last thought, thought, thought on that was I did get some feedback from religious people back that were like, well, yeah, but um, they're really all God and they're kind of acting as a you know, a gray area umbrella that kind of covers all sex and religions. But whenever you get that feeling, it's God giving it to you. Um, but, and, but it doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. It seems kind of a cop out. And on top of that, um, well, what's he giving you a good feeling about praying to Satan for, right? Like it, I can kind of understand if, if it's Buddha or some other, you know, good deity, but there is a lot of those that weren't so good. And they get the exact same feelings. So that's kind of where my crack in faith started happening in my early 20s. And from there, it was just me weighing it out on a scale. And I'm a very, uh, you know, I'm an application engineer in real life. And so I'm very um, analytical and, and I just stacked up data. I just said, hey, what would, what's more yeah. probable? And that's where I got to where I'm and, at. You and know? how
0: great it was that you were able to take the fire you had from... This kind of road to Damascus moment, it sounds like you had during your sometime during your second interview and and preparing for this uh, potential pilgrimage, basically, or whatever you'd call it in Mormonism, that you would turn it into literally making a a scientific survey of uh, and trying to answer these questions in a scientific way. Kind of nice irony to that.
1: And I think that um, it doesn't seem an uncommon thing for me, me, because I lived through it and I did it. But as I talk to more people that are religious, you get to. Understand that the whole point of religion and the whole point of the way that you're brought through it as a young, malleable brain—you know—type of way, it's structured to have you not question these things. It's it's structured to blindly think of faith as something that just happens and it's correct, and feel and feeling extremely guilty about asking the questions. And one of my, um, like, just as an example, I have many books that are written. That, you know, that, that simplify things that I that I believe are true, things like, um, you know, evolution and, and and, you know, more scientific type stuff. Well, if I hand that to my father and say, hey, dad, can you, you got to read this? It's short. It's written for a high score. So you don't need to be, have a Ph.D. to understand it. And it and it shows you why it, religion doesn't make sense. They won't even touch mm-hmm. the book. They feel sick just knowing that you're offering it to them. Like my son could offer this to me to read, versus me. I don't know if it was some weird thing I was born with, but I, I don't mind reading the the positives and minuses of yeah. things, and then deciding and changing my mind depending on what I think has has more mm-hmm. evidence. Right? I don't think it's as common out no, there. Or it's, something. It's,
0: it seems always to be the case that the reverse is never true. In, in that, if you're open to somebody's belief as, as somebody who doesn't have a belief system or 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 maybe deconverted at least I found anecdotally and the people I've talked to um, the opposite isn't true, right? It's, it's harder for those who do believe something to accept that kind of, or to have that kind
2: of openness to things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I find it actually kind of beautiful. And um, you know, there's like a transcendent element when you talk about, you know, recognizing your own confirmation bias because we're all guilty of it everybody is but when you're able to recognize it and start to recognize those thoughts as they occur and like sort of self-correct you know it exists as sort of a self-protection mechanism as you hinted to but i think that's super cool when you recognize your intellectual power like that and you can really analyze and step away from like some of your human limitations, psychologically speaking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking of those limitations, uh, one of my thoughts on religion is, you know, religion as a whole, I don't think is a terrible thing. Whenever you look at it as the, at the individual level, like I have friends, a good friend of mine who got off you know, heroin and drugs and he's been clean for 15, 17 years. One of my best friends. And, and, just an outstanding guy, but he had, you know, a length of time where he was really, really in the in the gutter with needles in his arm kind, kind of stuff. And if for him, religion changed that, then I'm all for it. Right. If religion changed that person to they needed that I look at it as a crutch, maybe they look at it as a set of escalator. Right. That That, that helps them easily up whatever it is. I'm all for that. Um, but whenever I think that you, whenever you start re- researching the history, the history of, of religion, it seems pretty uh, nefarious to me, and you know from its beginnings. And I, I think that people be able to turn and, and say, I'm going to step out of this from the third person and look at this without emotion and see, what, does this make sense? What is what is it that I believe, and why are these things? Without feeling guilty, I mean, it would be it would be huge, but like, it's just this rare? It's just rare, you know? Yeah. You
0: know what? I, I wonder too, because it sounds like you are somebody who is, you know, I hate to keep using this phrase, but on fire uh, in your religion. And it seems that I've heard that story more than once. And certainly that's my story too, that the more you kind of get into it, uh, if you already had, if you had some inclination to critical thinking that you kind of come out the other end, because I always say for my own story that I, I kind of dug my way out through the end. You know, if that makes or through the belly of the beast, I always say to keep using religious imagery and metaphors.
1: Now, did you get out of religion without any without affecting your relationship with your friends and family or was it a different story?
0: No, for me, it was. Well, I guess I pretty much came out unscathed, much like your experience. I didn't in the clergy and in the church. I didn't I had great community. There was a lot of positive influences, nothing scandalous or, you know, like that. Uh but definitely, I had some uh friends who i don't speak with anymore who once they found out, more or less disowned me it's still something we don 't really you know i don't really talk about that much in detail with my family. Luckily, my family isn't that religious anyway. I was kind of the one who was more on fire uh back when I was so <clears throat> how about how about you Kenny? i
2: can't remember how it went for you yeah for me it was uh it was pretty rocky actually. Um, because I I was a worship leader in a church at the time so I was on staff and um, you know so that sort of amplified the struggle leading up to the point when I you know quote came out Um, but you know at at the point that I made my decision though I simply just stepped out of that role and you know sort of parted ways with the church but you know, I was already married and my wife is a, a avid Christian and still is today. Um, so that, that caused quite a bit of rockiness in our relationship for a little while. We came out the other side, okay, because we love each other for lots of reasons that don't have anything to do with religion, thankfully. But, you know, that was definitely the hardest thing. And her whole family, of course, her, her you know, she's got family that work in various church roles and um, my whole family as well, although you know, a lot more flexibility, I would say, in what people in my family believe. So, you know, nobody was as surprised in my family, but there's still a lot of people that I just don't bring it up to because I know ahead of time what the reaction will be. So I've been a little bit pragmatic on a lot of those fronts, but yeah, it, it was rocky there with my wife for a while and, but we worked through it, thankfully.
1: And now you find that she's uh, accepting of what you are, you're accepting of what her are, it doesn't, it doesn't interject negatively at all?
2: Yeah, for the most part, I'd say that's true you know, we sort of, we have two kids and we raise them sort of a happy medium where we basically are trying to teach them to think for themselves. And, you know, she just sort of teaches what her values are. And, you know, I I sort of do the same, but, you know, at this point I'll still go to church with her, the whole family. You know, I have a lot of friends there, like really deep friendships there. So I don't have any problem going, you know, and most of my close friends within that circle know, you know, that I'm a I'm a non-believer, so it hasn't caused any friendship struggles. So,
1: you know, one thing I thought of whenever you mentioned, whenever you said morals, and that's something that uh, I'd want to hit on, um, is I think that there is this misconception with um, the religious, right? That at least some of them that feel that um, in order to make the right decisions or have that moral compass or to be someone who has good morals or or can be a good have a good family values and values, they think that that's a necessity. You know, religion is is to have those things. But I will tell you this since I've left religion behind, um, in my mid twenties to where I'm at now, my life has never been as it's, it's less stressful. I've done more for my communities and the people I love and nonprofits and volunteerism. Um, I, I've, I've self reflected and bettered myself as much as I can. It's a daily struggle, but I work on it a lot. I find that, um, without living with that, um, Burden over my shoulder of religion and what God thinks—it really gives me free reign to analyze these things myself and really focus on just being a better person, right? So, so it's ridiculous to think that the moral compass comes from from something like that. You, you can look at a million different instances and a million different people that are such good people that really try hard that um you know donate massive amounts of time and, and, and effort into the betterment of the world that don't, that don't believe at all, right? It's just it's just it's not it's not reality that it requires that religious face to, to to be that kind of person you know i
2: think most atheists or or non-theists would sort of agree that morality is subjective you know and we can appreciate that just just knowing that even two non-believing people are going to have varied opinions on different levels of morality um so it's easier for us to be able to recognize that and we we fight less amongst ourselves just because there are a lot less restrictions basically.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. I was going to say to me, it it was interesting because it it seems like if you have to have put your moral compass in something existential, I mean, I believe this now, it seems like it's pretty thin. Uh, It's not when I think about the application to the real world, it doesn't seem like it's um, that great. Uh, The idea to me was never quite settled that I could just give my problems to God. You know, it's something I've heard a lot in church that, you know, just give it to him and he'll take care of it and, and work through it and through prayer and all that stuff. And to me, I just thought, I, I think there was always some tiny part of me that thought that was somewhat of a cop out because it didn't make you kind of face the thing fully in um, not to say that we, you know, that I do that now completely. I mean, there's certainly other scapegoats that are not God-shaped, but um, I feel the same way that you feel, Cameron, in that I'm definitely more of a, at least moral-minded person at the, at the very least, where I'm thinking about the, the right and wrong aspects of what I'm doing in a more holistic and, and full-on way other than just to say, this is right, this is wrong, and then kind of go off those black and whites.
2: Yeah, well, that's the thing. So... We said that morality is subjective, but it's also relative. You know, if you walk up to somebody on the street and straight ask them, you know, is it wrong to murder someone? They'd say, of course. But then you could qualify by saying, is it wrong to murder someone who's trying to murder your kid? So, right. There's too much gray there to be able to put it in the box of any scriptural text, something like Christianity or Mormonism. Like, They just don't do enough to solve those moral problems to be considered any kind of authority on the subject of morality.
1: Yeah,
0: exactly. They would never think that, of course. Uh, le- that would never be overt to them, but they're always going to do things like Prop 8 and um, all the, you know, have a whole sect of uh, <laughs> a whole wing of uh, politics, more or less, in their in their pocket.
1: Mm-hmm. I also took a look at um, and it's a little bit of a steer off. Off this exact topic we're on right now, but um, back whenever, because I, I, I had a lot of these discussions with my dad. Right whenever I was telling him, "Look, man, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a believer. This is, this is my thing now." There were probably a two year span of time where he would come over to the house and he'd want to pray with my kids, and you know, me and my wife didn't really want that to happen, and I kind of had to corner him in the in the laundry room and be like, "Listen, man, enough's enough. It's been years. You know, this is these aren't my beliefs." Yeah. Um, and we had a minimal arguments about these specific topics. About um, you know, he kept on saying. You know, well, we, you can't prove, you can't tell me that X, Y, and Z, whatever it is, right? It, because it's not solvable. Science doesn't know it. I don't know it. I don't know. Um, and I would say, well, yeah, obviously that's the case. But the the, the uh, analogy or the example I'd always give him was, you know, I think that if you go back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, the amount of things that were ununder- that were not understood to, to humans, right, the sciences of the world and the universe that weren't understood, probably constituted like ninety five percent of a pie chart. Right. I mean, the very large majority was just like, dude, if you don't know how it happens, it's God. Right. If you're if you're um, if your church gets hit by lightning, you have sinners in your congregation or if, you know, and, and on and on. And as that puzzle keeps or as that piece of the pie starts to get smaller and smaller, where we do know why lightning strikes and, you know, Benjamin Franklin throws a you know a, a a rod out in, in the in 38 feet outside of a of a church and uh, the, a lightning rod and says hey every if you if all you churches just put these outside of your church they'll they won't get hit by lightning anymore and you got you won't have to put money in to keep on rebuilding these over and over and over and they had that they had to say you know the church has to say oh man do we do we do that? Do we put the rod out there and say or do we keep to the, you know, if your if your church gets hit by lightning, you got sinners. Yeah. So that that piece of the pile pie that's not understood goes down to n- n- now we can explain probably 90%, 95% of the questions of the world. But the religious people really hold on to the, those last couple percentages where you just don't know and you know a lot of conversations with my with my family and friends about those those type of things
2: well on that note you you know you talked a little bit about your your psychological buy-in with mormonism but do you recall any experiences with what you feel was something supernatural you know any supernatural events in your life either related to mormonism or not
1: as a kid yes and again this might just be my glass my 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 uh, my analysis side of my brain that is always working. Um, But as a little kid, yes. I mean, I, I can remember a story where me and a kid, probably 13 or 14 years old, were on a camping trip. You know, we went out into the woods and we're walking around throwing rocks and doing whatever kids do. And we got lost and it got extremely late. And we live up in the, you know, in the, in the Northwest where it's, it's foresty, extremely thick bears, you know, and we uh, I was a scout. We were doing scouting stuff. We had our knives and stuff with us. Well, we got lost for many, many hours. Looking back it, it, and we decided, me and my friend, to sit down, to pray. We would just start walking the direction that felt good and we would get back to safety. And that's exactly what happened, right? That's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And it was this huge thing. Oh my God, we found it. We were, our, prayers were, our prayers were answered. But as you start to become, an, uh, you could probably walk you know if you break uh, 360 degrees down into a bunch of chunks there's only you know pretty much three or four probabilities that could point you in a direction where you'd find people quickly the where you either. and you start to realize that it's like well i had a 25% chance of finding it anyway and we just happened to guess the right chance as a kid you don't understand things like that you can't look at probability and so i there's been nothing in my adult life that i've thought oh there has to be some something pointing me in this direction it's all circumstantial um Twists of fate in my mind, you know.
0: Yeah, I can definitely relate to that big time. Uh, for me, that was always a, a bedrock of the faith that I had. Is that I had these stories like X, Y, and Z could not have happened without God's intervention. And it, yes, I hear about it all the time. Yeah, I mean, so I think without these anecdotes, you basically. I mean, I just feel like there's there's nothing, and and um, I mean, I can just call so many times where I would use that as my testimony and it would just always be great because, you know, how, how else could it work? But yeah, as you say, the more you, (laughs) the more you think about probability and just the things happen, you know, how they're not, how they're supposed to, but you know, like, for example, I, one of my big stories that I used to tell is I went to jail for a night because I had these like parking or not parking, these speeding tickets that I didn't pay off. And, you know, I prayed and thought, well, if he gets me out of this jam, then, you know, I'm definitely going to believe now. And then, of course, it happened that I had a friend who called and posted bail and all this stuff. And, You know, that was huge for me. And and after that, I remember I had a huge boost for a long time with my spirituality and and my testimony and and just being on fire for Christ. So I imagine these types of things keep happening and they keep people kind of on the path, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's the whole Occam's razor thing, right? Like to Mm -hmm. to me, it's typically the thing that is the most obvious or the simplest that's going to be what the real answer is. And Mm -hmm. I think as the younger that you are, you that... That those gears aren't working 100% in your head yet. You're still learning the things of the world, and you're still learning about how numbers and probability and, and, and chance works. And, and then there's obviously the things that happened. Like the thing that you just explained, there was probably a very high percentage chance as you as a kid growing up in America with family that loves you. You, you were going to get out of the situation, right, by a bail or by something, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, but think about something that happens extremely rare. That's harder to say that, oh, yeah, that that was definitely probability. You know, it's not probable like when, like the like the winning the lotto equivalent of like something that happens crazy in your life. Like you get into an airplane crash and everyone dies, but you are laying on the side of the mountain in, in a pile of snow and you're fine. Those kind of things are harder to say, well, that's probable. But those are also things you know that if you flip a coin X amount of times, the probability of it landing, you know, straight up and down balanced on its knife edge is very, very rare, but I wouldn't say that it would never happen. That those, those, rare, those rare things do happen, but not, as, but, but not very often. You know what I'm saying? Not very often. So Cameron, regarding
2: your, you know, your lost in the woods story, um, looking back today, do you feel pretty strongly that it, it was completely due to chance that you guys made it back or do you still leave room for some other type of supernatural event, you know, such such as just like basic intuition, whatever that means to you, or you know, maybe this long lost uh, human ability to sense the magnetic field of the earth, which allowed you to remember which way you had come from. I don't know, something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that that's way more probable than <laughs> some dude flying around out there giving me direction, really. <laughs> but uh, but I, I would say this because I know where you're going with that, and and I would never close myself off to a possibility, even if it was 999999999 percent not probable, I would always say if possibly, right? And that goes with religion. For instance, if God, you know, came down from the skies and landed in front of me and said, This is this is true and, and this is you need to be a believer, I wouldn't sit there and try to tell him about how that wasn't the case. I would be a believer. Or if something happened um, that was extremely easy, you know if it was a provable, scientific provable thing that happened, it was, you know, I would believe, but until then I wouldn't, you know, it just, it's kind of like that whole, you've heard the, you know, if, if there could be a dragon on the other side of, um, you know, Jupiter that we just can't see. Yeah. Well, there could, there absolutely could be because we don't know there's nothing. there looking at the back side of it. There could be, but probability says there's probably not. And until I see the dragon or extremely good evidence, I'm, I'm not a believer, you know, but I don't close my mind off to um, those things a hundred percent. I just think that it's very, very, very improbable.
2: Yeah, I think Occam's razor is probably the best tool in the kit for something like that. I agree.
0: Yeah, I agree as well. And it's unfortunate that I think that our human brain in its current capacity is probably never going to move past that. Uh, there's We always have, we, I I feel, are evolutionary desi- evolutionarily designed to see patterns where they don't exist. And, um, you know, this is definitely no exception. And there's always going to be some you know god type of whole. i think it's just a matter of reasoning it out and understanding it so you don't let it uh influence you in in all the ways that religion seems to <laughs>
2: it's not just the god thing you know um we're sort of susceptible to that on lots of levels you know one thing i think of is like uh, conspiracy theories in general you know i'm i'm i personally feel super prone you know to the the latest batch of conspiracy theories you know I, I spend hours going down the youtube rabbit holes and I, every time i have to center myself you know sort of using an occam's razor type mindset just you know to, to sort of hone and cut down on some of the ridiculousness and just sort of think more well, be, go-
1: be glad you have that yeah. <laughs> because a lot of people don't right. they just go down the hole it's still and never go, go down back.
2: that hole though i gotta be honest
0: yeah. yeah. It can be fun to go on a ride, you know, just to see like how, how nuts does this really get? Yeah. It's pretty fun.
1: And, and you know what ends up happening is it's all about people privy to information, right? It's like, um, I don't know, like like a, like Area 51, mm-hmm. right? Where no, you don't know what's there. No one's going to let you in to go look through all of its closets. So you're just not going to know. But whenever you look at the reality of what it probably is, again, Occam's razor, it, it, it probably is just a bunch of stuff you have no clue about mm-hmm. for the safety of the Americans, for the safety of whatever. That's probably all it is now because some dude was up on the hill with binoculars and saw some weird thing because he was tripping on peyote or whatever whatever's going on it's not enough for me to buy into the the simplest solution is which my point being is whenever people don't know that is all filled in by imagination and some people have the ability to look at that and say yeah no that's (laughs) come on now and other people don't have that trigger that allows them to step back from and say this is crazy right
0: Mm -hmm. yeah for sure Um, So Cameron, I want to go back uh, just a bit to when we were talking about um, the crack, basically the first crack, uh, you were doing these surveys, um, kind of gathering your own evidence. So tell me more about that journey, because I know we left off where you were about to enter the third interview or
1: close to that, right? Oh, right. Yeah. So at that point, <laughs> I think we didn't go on because there wasn't a whole lot after that. Okay. By the time college was happening, um, I had I had a kid on the way then. So I, I I met a gal, you know, had had a baby, had another baby was on the way. I have two, I have two boys now that are teenagers. And um, it was one of those things where it was like I had answered. I had answered all the questions I needed to answer for myself where I was stacking evidence on both sides of that scale of is it real or is it not? and it was overwhelming to me to the point where I could close the book at that point. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and just kind of, and just kind of walk away from it. But you know, it's funny because I also feel now I'm not talking about the part of religion that's spiritual. I'm ta- talking about the part of the re- the religion that's community based and, and i um, hu- more human. Right. Um, Me and my wife have always felt that we are missing something in our lives, not not spiritually, but by the communities left behind, right? So I miss that sense of um, instilling good morals in your family, right? Not drinking alcohol, not, um, you know, there's a bunch of things that might be a a little extreme, but the purpose, if you go talk to any Mormon out there, nine times out of 10, or more than that, 90, 99 out of 100, you're going to find beautiful people that are absolutely sane in all things in their life except their really their belief in their God and the crazy stuff that goes on there. Yeah. Um, but you're going to find these beautiful, amazing people. And I miss that part of religion, right? I cannot find a community that I can belong to as an atheist where I can feel like I have that commitment from a group of people to help me if I need help and for me to give it help too. I've, I've always been looking for that, I think, to this day. Um, That's the part of religion that I do miss. And uh, I mean, if you're in a bigger city, if you're in Europe where atheism is a lot bigger, right? I think there are some groups out there that try to fill that gap. But um, I do have that sense of not belonging to a group. I have a lot of friends and a lot of family, but there's no group I can go to and talk about things that I want to talk to about that are doing potlucks that are mm. teaching their kids to grow up like good people and help the world out and not be egotistical and not be. And that came from my religion to the point where I didn't start drinking alcohol in my life just because it was ingrained in my head that you were going straight to hell if you did. Mm. Right. Um, until I was 33 years old when I had my first drinks of alcohol, you know, and now I'm a huge, wine, uh, I'm a huge uh, consumer of, uh, I love whiskey. So, I wouldn't say I drink a lot, but I'm a, I'm a whiskey fan now. You know, but anyway, I mean, I, I, it, um, alcohol has never caused a problem personally for me in my life. It's always been something you do casually, and it makes you laugh, and it kind of loosens you up with groups of people. But man, I was told that that was a slippery slope that led straight to hell. You know, um, it took me till I was 33 and an atheist for years and years and years before I even considered what would happen if I drink alcohol. So that's interesting, you know.
2: Yeah, actually, Aaron and I have talked a lot about that before, how we wish there were some mechanism that wasn't religion based, um, because I, I totally agree. I miss that part as well, that, you know, that that, quote, fellowship where people will just come together. They're committed to each other. They love each other. And, you know, they I don't know, there's something almost on the level of family about that that I miss as well.
1: Absolutely, there is. And it, um, you know, and, and there's some communities out there. This is funny too. I, I looked at some of these communities where maybe I'd join the, um, the Masons, you know, the old Still Masons groups that are around or the, or the, um, what is it, the Elks? And I'm, and I'm a pretty young guy considering I went to the Elks and everybody was 70, right? And, um, but there was certain things that I had to do or say that made me not even eligible there. You know, you had to believe in a higher power, for instance, at the Elks, you know, mm. you ha- and, and I just was like, well, I would talk to my family who were in the Elks and they would say, well, just say that you believe in a higher power. You don't got to define it. They don't talk about it there. No one mentions it. It's, there's no praying or praying or, and I go, but I can't, I can't just look someone in the eye and say, I absolutely believe in a higher power. Sign me up. It goes completely against what I believe, you know, in my, you know, and that's what I find looking at these groups or there's groups out there that are atheists. But there are six people in a city and it's like some Reddit Reddit meetup group or something where it's like it's not serious enough for me to make family connections with and have these people in my life till I die. It's like it's I'm always striving to find that group, you know?
0: Yeah, I completely relate to that. I've had the same issue with uh, Overeaters Anonymous like any I've been to some of those and they're good up until you get to the higher power stuff um and it's actually the higher power stuff doesn't bother me as much as just the sheer traditionalism and legalism and the rules and the structure of the thing it's too yeah. it's just so church like i cannot uh help but shake that and you you know everything from putting away the chairs all the after all the good stuff happens after the meeting and all this stuff. And I'm just, it was just uh, eerily too much like church. And at this point in my life, I'm too differentiated, I think, to go back to that.
1: I never thought about it from that perspective, from the, if you, if you remove the religion part of those groups and you make another group with a different name and it doesn't have religion, they almost are all from a religious background. And so they end up taking processes and procedures and and wrapping them around there that make it feel almost exact too close to religion. Mm -hmm. It's complicated, man. I don't have the answers, but yeah, it's a, it's a search.
0: It's funny. You mentioned the Reddit meetup for the atheists. That's one of the first things I did when I came to Orlando, because I'm originally from uh, Michigan. We're, We're close to where Kenny's living now. And I went to a meetup, an atheist meetup, and it was okay, but there was such a it was it's weird because there was like an overtone of bitterness and just harping on religion and that's fine and I, I don't mind doing that. Of course, you know, obviously we're making a, a in a sense of podcast about uh, that to, to some degree, but to have that be the only focus—it's um, just not quite the same thing, you know. Because even in religious context, your focus is a uh, a love, basically. It's kind of love-based, even though that's obviously, you know, expanded to all this other scripture and weird stuff, but essentially, like you mentioned earlier, it's a community that is focused on just being a better person, even if that's not necessarily, uh, all great. Uh, there's enough good in it to where it's, it's really communal and, and brings people together in a way that nothing else can. Uh, I haven't seen it. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. in the same boat you're in basically.
1: Hey, um, I just thought of this on the side. If, have you seen the uh, Broadway musical, the book of Mormon where, uh, the park tra- trains, Parker, what well, the South Park guys have created it.
2: I'm sad to say I haven't. I have not. I really want to see that. It
0: came to Orlando, too. I had a chance and I, I didn't do it. It's got the damn that's song. It's got the damn Orlando song and I should win.
1: <laughs> yeah, it does. Orlando, oh. I love you. Yeah, <laughs> It's a great, great flick, man. Uh, sure. If you guys ever have the opportunity to go get in there, you know.
2: For sure. Yeah, that's, you know, you bring up a good point, Aaron, about, uh, you know, some of these some of these atheist groups, you know, as, as an atheist, I think that's one of the last places I'd want to find myself only because, you know, if this focus is sort of anti-religion, right? Because once you sort of step away from religion, um, some people maybe have that drive to sort of proselytize their atheism, but you, you pretty quickly realize you're just beating your head against the wall in most cases, and people just aren't willing to listen. Um, and so, so most people end up just sort of withdrawing a little bit. So one of the last things you want to do is just harp on religion. You want to find something else that's more meaningful that you can move on to. That's more, more worthy of your time. Am I right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's hundred percent accurate. Yep. I, I want to be in a community where we're all atheists. Where almost atheism never gets brought up. Exactly. It's just it's a lack of belief. Just like atheism is a lack of belief in something, right? Like the, the, it's like I want to be part of a group where that doesn't even need to be brought up. I don't care anything about your gender, your color, your anything, your religion or your politics. Um, just leave it at the door and let's just be humans and work together and love each other, man. You know, we don't need all this other stuff. Yeah, that's what I was getting at for sure.
0: I often find I'm explaining to people uh, that. Being an atheist isn't necessarily in itself a belief system. I I always try to go down the categories like, well, first there's theists, non-theists. I'm a non-theist. And I, of course, throw in the agnostic because really I don't know. And like you were mentioning earlier, Cameron, if there was uh, some evidence, obviously I would be open to that. So I'm always open to the possibility. And going further down the the categories, you you get into beliefs. And for me, it's humanistic, um, humanism basically, you know. And mm-hmm. and the laws of the land, and it kind of just goes from there. So that's how we always try to break it down to people.
1: Yeah, one of the um, little things that I always—I I don't remember if I saw, read this on or uh, listen to this on Joe Rogan or uh, something in the ba- in the in the past. But I, I basically tell people, you know, when they ask me about being atheist, I say, well, you know, being atheist and being Christian or being atheist and being whatever religion the person is I'm talking to is very very similar. Mm-hmm. And I say, do you believe in Zeus? Yeah. No, you think that's completely crap. You know, do you believe in Islam? Do you believe in uh, being reincarnated as a beetle or, you know, whatever? Do you believe in all these things? Oh, absolutely not. And I just say, I simply take it one God further. I agree with you with all that stuff you just said. I don't believe in any of it. Um, I just simply also don't believe in your religion. Yeah. You know? But we're very close to each other when it comes to that. Yeah. that That sounds like
0: something Dawkins used to say. I really... Uh, I cut my teeth on a lot of that stuff, especially that could
2: beginning. have been where it was at.
1: <laughs> yeah. That could have been where it was at. Yeah.
2: He had some zingers, man. No kidding. Well, Cameron, so I'm interested to know, are there any sort of relics of spirituality that you do hold on to? Like, is there room for spirituality in your life? Do you find yourself, uh, with a tendency toward, you know, something like philosophy from the matrix or from avatar or from like hermetic philosophy where, you know, all is mind and this is a shared <laughs> dream state, any of that stuff.
1: So that's really funny. You mentioned that I have a really good guy that I work with, um, who's also a computer programmer and, and we talk about this thing, these things, and he had the, the, you've heard it before where we could be living inside of, um, you know, an alien simulation. Right. And something like that to me is way more probable than anything I've ever heard before. Do And I also think it's not very probable, mind you. But if we're stacking things up on like why we're here and what we're doing here, and someone said, how far down is that on the list of probabilities for you? I'd put that closer to something that could definitely happen, where um, advanced races and civilizations have been able to Mind you, it sounds, you sound like a crack case whenever you say these things and I'm not, te- I don't even believe this stuff. I'm just saying if there was a probability, it would be more probable mm-hmm, yeah. than you know, Zeus flying around making us do things or this whole thing. It would be more probable saying that uh, civilizations have, have progressed to a look at the way that we code video games and you can make some, you know, pick SimCity, you know, or any video game where you could, could make a, a civilization on, on your computer screen. Um, why, why if, whenever that it's evolved for 20,000, 30,000 years or a million or 10 million years, what is, why couldn't you simulate the thoughts of people's psyches and, and, and make a big sandbox of this kind of stuff and just let it spin around and, and, and do tests on? I think that's more probable. Um, although I don't necessarily believe it. I think that that's more realistic, you know?
2: Oh, I mean, it, it's probable enough to be a fun thought experiment, especially when you consider, you know, that if this is an alien simulation, or a matrix like simulation. And then within that simulation, we're developing the ability to create uh, sub simulations, you know, sort of this inception level upon level upon level of these simulation realities.
1: Mm. It's fun mm-hmm. to think about. It is fun to think about. It is. And the difference between a conspiracy theorist and <laughs> someone like you or me is, is I think about it and I like to dive deep on it, but then I get to the point where I'm like, well, that's probably not probable. No.
2: Yeah, you just start thinking about what you're going to have for dinner later. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've also put so much thought in my life into religion that I kind of had to get to I think that anything that you do in excess in life can be bad. It doesn't matter what it is, right? It doesn't matter what it is. You could drink too much water and die. Everything. And so I think with religion for me, I had to get to the point where I was in my late 20s and I kind of had to stop asking the questions because I either had to go into theology or something in college and get a degree in it or or be one of those guys that won't shut up about it to other people. I just had to be like, this is what I'm content at being at. And I'm happy with my life. I'm self-bettering myself. I'm trying to make my communities and the people I'm around better and love each other. Um, and, and that's it. That's it. I'm not going to go and keep going deeper. And maybe that's not good either. That's what separates philosophers from your average everyday dude. But I'm just your average every, everyday dude that doesn't need to look into it anymore. I've kind of answered the questions for myself and, went and did the math. You know, yeah. 15 years ago, and I'm happy with it. Uh, I can absolutely relate
0: because that's definitely where I'm more at right now. To for me, I worry about practical application. Like how do how do we actually solve the problems that are here and now? Um, you know, I'm not exactly worried about the heat death. I don't really have an interest or it doesn't pique my interest as much to think about, you know, what could be when I know that the end result of that would would be just, okay, well, I don't know. So what is for dinner? <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> like the amount of time you'd have to research to get a answer to yourself. Or, and, yeah. and I think that's the different types of people. You're obviously a type of guy, a uh, type of person who can dig deep, right? But there's a lot of people out there that don't have the uh, mental capacity or they don't have the mental desire mm-hmm. to do that. And that's not a bad thing. That's a different thing. I always tell my wife when we're talking about arguments or whatnot, that it's a, it's not that she's wrong or I'm right. It's just that we have a completely different way of thinking about it. And perspective is all that matters. Right. And it's that way with those going down the rabbit hole converse, uh, thoughts. I could go down a, uh, I could pick a topic and if I wanted to could never stop thinking about it to the day I died, but there's just so much that's, that's, needs to be thought about. And it's hard to, it's hard for me to sit on one, uh, one item too long. You know, I'm kind of flighty like that, you know?
0: Yeah. Or just the fact that, you know, how things are interconnected and how everything plays into itself. Um, it, Pretty much any topic, like you said, you could pick and how they can all, all intertwine. And to me, I mean, if I had any type of spirituality, it's, it's that, um, it's that we are, we are inexorably connected to each other in, in a lot of different ways. We either see or we don't see. And the beauty for us is that we're living in a time where we may get to see some of those cool things and see how they connect and, and work. So,
1: you know, yeah, absolutely. And you made me think of something um, kind of crazy too. So, so you know how a lot of people, well, I don't know how to word it other than um, I think that your typical religious zealot or even people that aren't religious crazies, right? Your typical everyday believer. Um, but then you go into the level of the you get away from the crowd that believes and you go into the leadership and then how far up do you have to go with the Mormons you know you got your bishop and then your stake president and mission president and then it goes up to the quorum of the sixty and then you have the then you have the twelve apostles and then you have the prophet of the church right mm-hmm. at what level are these people just along for the ride because they checked off the boxes and they just kind of climbed the ranks and now they're they're a leader of their of their really high up versus the guys that actually think that they talk to God, yeah. right? Where they think it's not it's not fake to them or it's not, oh, I'm just trying to be a good dude and lead a group of people to do good things, but they actually think they have discussions with God. And I think that over, and this is a whole different topic, but I think that over the course of time, you would be surprised at how many of these people either have one of two things happening, these religious people that are unorthodox or come up with these religions or the, or the, or the charismatic people that run their churches. I think that it either had to do with a little bit of mental uh, of, of a mental problem, right, mm-hmm. where they're actually they think that they are seeing these things um, or psychedelics. Yeah, I think that um, with psychedelics back, you know, you can go back as far as you want to go. There's people that have experienced with things sitting in the woods, eating certain things. Um, you know, and getting these, these type of experiences where they have no way to quantify them other than them being something that's religious. And, and uh, that is a very uh, interesting topic as well, you know? Yeah. I mean, all the
0: stories too, you have there, the burning bush and all the, uh, the, I mean, the entire book of revelations,
2: you know, that easily could have been a big trip, sort of a thing flying around pop culture right now. I think Joe Rogan mentioned it recently was just that the burning bush, could have been or likely was you know experience uh, some psychedelic probably the acacia tree um uh, you know which caused some of the, the visions and some of the things in the moses story there anyway side note
1: yep yep i heard the same cast absolutely heard the same cast and i think that um for me um the first time i did uh lsd you were talking about my feelings on spirituality. Then you mentioned some stuff about being interconnected and if there's any belief there Mm -hmm. and it's, that's gets to, that's really tough for me to answer because up until the point I, I did a psychedelic LSD, which was about five years or six years ago. Um, I was convinced, literally convinced that no, there's nothing else out there. There's no interconnection of, of anything, but taking psychedelics in the right mindset, in the right setting, um, you know, with someone that you love or at a very, very very peaceful time in your life. Well, you'll, I came out of that experience thinking, but maybe what Mm -hmm. if, and not necessarily is there a God or that kind of thing, but more or less, is there this, this other, this other level of connection between humans and living things, the trees and the grass that breathes under your feet and, and all these, is there, is there something that does actually in science connect us? And we're just not privy to that information until we. Um, take something that messes with our brain, you know, I don't know that's one of the things I couldn't, I don't know, but it certainly made me feel like that way. I've never felt more connected to the, to the world around me and the beauty of the universe and the people that I love, my wife and my kids. And, you know, you, you it changed mentally who I was and how I felt about some stuff. I'll tell you that.
0: Cameron, I wonder if that experience at all parallels to the Road to Damascus moment you basically had that you were telling us about earlier. Do you see any parallel to that, or do you think it's a totally different time and place?
1: You're talking about the feelings I had of confirmation of my religion when I was praying in my mom's house and how those may be on a level that I was able to see then and as well as able to see whenever I was on acid. Is that what you're hinting at? Yeah, I
0: guess so, because I'm just thinking of numinous experiences and their impact on our lives um, and how they can change our lives completely. And, And these are two moments, it sounds like, where, you know, your perspective changed pretty, pretty radically.
1: Well, I think that they both have in common that your brain's doing something to you, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, both of those are situations. Where, I mean, one may be maybe be induced by I don't know. I don't know. That's a, I, I've never even thought about that before. But it's something to put some thought into. I don't even know if I can talk intelligently on it without giving an hour's worth of thought. That's really interesting, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I just I just think about. about I was going to say I just think about that, and because I haven't had any of that a psychedelic experience. And, and, um, that's kind of, I think one of the reasons me and Kenny are both interested in it is because, uh, you know, there's, there's promises of sort of those kinds of experiences.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's promises of more than just that too. You know, you have the, the promises of, um, well, uh, anything that I've done in my life that has where it's so before I did acid, I, ne- I, was, I wasn't a bad guy. I, had, I wasn't a bad dude or anything by any stretch. I was raising a family and just trying to go through this struggle of life we're all living through, right? But I never thought about anybody other than myself, my wife, and my kids, ever. And that was a, a me- immediate flip after, after LSD to wanting to be like, what am I doing for others? What am I doing to make this place better? What am I doing? Are we all connected here? I don't know, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try really hard to do some stuff. And that went down a road that I've been going down for six years where I've just, you know, I, I, I do wake up in the morning and I, and I think to myself, am I, am I trying to help out other people as much as I can? It's very important to me now. and It wasn't before LSD. I think that there's some really good things that can come from that. Um, your religion, um, you know, and, and, and rest- but. I'd also say that it's not uh, LSD is not something that you would take and then say, I'm I'm now gonna be an atheist. It was my path taking it where I already was an atheist, mm-hmm. took it and it and maybe it made me start thinking about it in a more scientific way than say if if you plopped it in my dad's mouth and said, Hey dad, I put it in your in your tea in the morning, you know, what what happened? He might completely be one of those dudes starting his own new religion. Yeah. <laughs> He'd take it a different way. I mean that's that's how they work, you know.
2: I feel such a strong call to psychedelics ayahuasca specifically but also lsd and others um just because i want to i want to explore that you know that that breakthrough in consciousness you know i i, I have this intuition that you know maybe mm-hmm. uh consciousness is all one consciousness and it's something that that really draws me to hermetic philosophy as well um so you know I'm going to, we're going to put a link in the show notes in this episode, uh, but Cameron has some, some writing on the subject of psychedelics that I'm interested to read. I haven't, I haven't yet. I just learned about it before the show here, but I'm super interested as well. And I think you touched on some really important uh, aspects of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. Did you want to say anything more about the, the link that we're going to share or just Leave it, let it speak for itself.
1: Uh, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a short story I put together years ago. And it basically, the name of it is LSD saved my marriage. Um, but it, it isn't only about marriage. It's about that point in your life where, um, you know, I had to create a bucket list for myself. I didn't have to, but I woke up one morning just like that. Man, what am I doing? You know, what um, what do, do I want to accomplish anything before I die? I actually stumbled upon a Reddit post that was, uh, what are your bucket lists and as I was going through these bucket lists of, on Reddit and reading people's 10, you know, and I, half of them are jokes and half of them are, you know, memes. And you finally, but you start pulling things out where people constantly reference certain things. And one was do a psychedelic before you die. And it kept popping up and it was nothing I had even thought about, especially coming from someone who doesn't drink, doesn't, doesn't smoke. And, and during this time, I hadn't either, um, in my, in my early thirties. And, and, but I kept seeing it so then I just started doing some more research. You know, we talked about research and, and I like to dig deep. So I started pulling, you know, reports all over and and reading scientific journals and realizing that, you know, how much went into, I, I started realizing that there wasn't really anything bad about it. There wasn't really anything I could find bad about it unless, you know, you did it in a really bad mental state and you had a reaction with your antidepressants or something like these you know, you read the the thing on TV where it says, take this drug. But if you experience bleeding from your eyes, don't take it. You know, it's like those <laughs> little things can happen. But the very large majority of all this stuff, um, there was nothing bad about it. It wasn't addictive. It didn't pop up on your average drug tests. It, um, it opened people's eyes. So I just started looking at all this evidence and saying, why the hell am I not doing this? And so I put together a bucket list um, that was a handful of items long. And it was, you know, learn how to fly an airplane and be certified scuba diver and get a motorcycle and go do more ri- motorcycle riding and better relationship with my wife and, you know, find a, uh, a tie hooker. And, you know, just <laughs> I just wrote up this huge long list of stuff I want to do before I die. Did and, your wife um, know about the tie hooker the, part? <laughs> yeah. So the funny thing is, is I, I kind of talk about that in my, um, in the, in the, in the article I wrote. And I will tell you this, I've never told anybody which of those bucket list items I have and haven't <laughs> done, but I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to tell you what my bucket list is but not what I've That's completed. Noble. <laughs> That's smart. And, and so, so once I, yeah. And so once I had the, the bucket list all written down, one of them was LSD. And I, I woke up the next day, right after I put together my bucket. I like the next morning I woke up and I'm like, okay, I'm going to learn how to number one is scuba dive. Well, I started pulling up prices online. I'm like, well, I don't got three grand. What's <laughs> cheaper. You know? So then I got, I went down the list to try to, you know, how can I quickly check like six of these off? And none of them were going to be quick or cheap except LSD. But I was like, dude, I'm living up on the north side of my town here, and I said neighborhood. I'm not going down to some sketchy, you know, alleyway and uh, and asking some some shady dude for LSD. So I had to learn about crypt, crypto cryptography and and SHA two fifty six algorithms and the dark net market and Bitcoin and transferring and Bitcoin um, um, tumbling to not get caught and all this crap and how to order it online and how to get it sent to you and all this stuff. had to go into figuring out just how to get it in the first place. And then the kits you have to buy to test it. So I'm not, you know, eating something with some dudes hearing (laughs) on it, you know, like I don't even know what it is. And so, yeah, that the story kind of just talks about that experience. And then to the point where I actually sat in my backyard on a beautiful spring day with my dogs in my hand and wrapped up in blankets sitting next to my wife. Um, And we tried LSD for the first time. um, And absolutely re-fell in love with each other, and other stuff happened too. It's it um it wasn't just our relationship that got better, but I saw her as a you know a, as a person that had the same wants or had her own wants and desires, and that was not uh, that was that we were equals. You know, I don't think up until that point I even thought me and my wife is I always felt trapped in the relationship. You know, it's like it was the first time I looked at this. Is like I got this human living with me that's just as devoted to our kids and our you know, and looking in her eyes and seeing this like like you talked about this interconnectedness of the world. And we cried together, which I don't think my wife had even ever seen me cry in my life. This 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 wall went down and that's kind of what the story is about. And and still, you know, every year we sit in, under that same tree and, and get to know each other for the first time again. You wow, know? That's really wow. beautiful. That's incredible.
0: And, and and I'm a little scared now because what you've described essentially is a uh, very good Uh, Very many sessions of couples counseling, and uh, my my profession that I'm trying to get into is mental health counseling. I'm in my second year, and uh, very much what you've described is is people rediscovering themselves and who they are in the context of their relationships. And to the idea that there's a wonder drug for that is pretty amazing. I mean, I know it's your personal experience, Mm. but uh, Mm -hmm. still, it's really interesting.
1: The crazy thing about that, though, is you'll find the more and more people you talk to, that's why it's on people's bucket list. Is that's not you know, it's not uncommon to feel that way. I think it is if you're doing it at a rave surrounded by, you know, a base and, and people partying, mm-hmm. it's, 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 all about what you want to take from things. Right. But if you are a mature person and you don't have anything in your mind, that's, you know, where you're crazy or anything, and you're just your you're average everyday dude or chick, I can't see how LSD could be anything going into it with an open mind other than a beautiful experience. And it's only helped me in life massively.
2: Nice. I'm really curious too, um, if you, if you feel like saying anything about the experience itself, um, specifically two things, um, do you feel like your consciousness went inward or outward, you know, or, well, I'll let you interpret that how you will. And did you meet any entities in that experience, non-human entities that you interacted with?
1: Right. So I, I don't know personally if you could take enough LSD to get you to the point where you're actually seeing other beings. I've taken as much as 400 micrograms. Um, you know, your average hippie in the 70s tripping with a sign in their hand saying peace and love, and it was probably on like 60 micrograms or 100 max back in the day. So 400 is, you know, four times that dose. And I, um, I think a couple things, if, if you were a religious person and you took 400 Micrograms of LSD. You could most certainly find your own revelation from a, from some type of a deity, either directly or emotionally, or a connection if you're looking for that. Right? Me, I wasn't personally. So whenever I, I looked at it, like you know, looking up at the sky and seeing the and seeing the star, or uh, in a different, not this, the first time I did it, but looking up at a dark sky and seeing geometry being connected through things, or looking at the back of a leaf. And watching and looking at the measurements between the little spokes that branch off, and and looking at the bark of a tree and, and watching it breathe. It's more of a a, a connectionness to everything around you, unless like a there's there's a group of people or a or a, be, a deity out there. At least it was for me and my wife. I will say that DMT is not it, it will he will see things on DMT that you know that you can get that a couple different ways. It's an extremely powerful. Um, typically a couple minute hit on a pipe with dmt on it and you're going to literally be strapped to a rocket going uh going a thousand miles an hour um completely paralyzed in your bed or wherever you're at and you will definitely see spiritual entities no matter if you're religious or not i've never done it but i've i've uh, i've read a lot about it and i know that Um, that, you know, and that, that, that's been around for a long time. DMT is, I mean, you can rub, you can go down to Arizona during some mating season of some frog down there and rub its (laughs) belly and, you know, take the glands off of its back legs. I'm not, I'm not kidding, man. And you can put it like on a piece of glass and dry it then scrape it off and smoke it. And you will be flying high as a kite. Wow, um, and it's it's also it's not a drug like a heroin or anything. It's also a, a very quickly out of your system drug, but it's a, it can be very very scary. And people see deities that are very similar. Uh, like it's not like people one seeing Barney the monster bar uh, Barney the the dinosaur, and another one seeing Jesus, and another one seeing um uh, something completely different everyone kind of explains the same beings that are there kind of controlling things it's like a way to see outside into into the matrix where you're seeing the strings that are pulling it all i've never done it but that's how it's been explained to me lsd feels more natural than that i i I, I haven't done a lot of drugs in my life i've only done lsd and and shrooms and, and and marijuana but um i feel like um um, LSD feels very, very natural. And you know why the hippies are out in fields hugging each other in the sixties and seventies. It's because whenever you have that feeling of being on LSD, you, um, you just love everything, not love it like an ecstasy way, a physical way. You just feel a connection to human. You, You feel very human. Um, and you can almost taste it. You know, you can almost taste that experience. And it's very emotional. It also, um, the next day after you do LSD. You wake up feeling like a million dollars. I'd say for the first week after you do it, you just feel high on life. You feel motivated. You feel like you want to be a better person. Um, you're just high on life. You feel really, really, really good. And, it, and, and it's, not, it's not addictive, actually, to the point where if you take LSD on a Monday, and then you take that same amount on a Tuesday, you'll only feel the effects half as much, and it diminishes that quickly. So you can't take LSD uh, over and over and over and over and over. It won't even work. You got to wait weeks or months to do it. Um, so these experiences are usually drawn out by months or years. Um, and if you go into it with the right m- mindset, it's just an absolute beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Heaven forbid you're going to do it with someone that you love. Um, it is it is very, very, very cool, man. And you probably read being in the profession that you're looking at going into, the use cases for things like PTSD, Right and mm-hmm. and and all these mental disorders that are out there—it's such a shame that we're being blocked from these types of research. Now you hear that, like Colorado now, I think's legalized uh, the use of um, shrooms yeah. mm-hmm. in certain. In, I don't know the details of certain type of situations. I don't know if it's recreational versus medicinal or whatnot. But there's so many applications to help people. It's not just about laying around drooling on yourself. Taking a drug, it has these applications that can change this fear in people, and it can take away the fear of death. A lot of people take it, you know, before death, and, and people have said they just didn't have the fear anymore. You just felt like it doesn't matter if you're here or you're or you're there on either side of death. You're, you know, you're part of it all, you know, and you know even what, science even goes back a bit to that, right? You got ever when I start stardust in them. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like we are connected, really. Like science shows that we all are connected. We have atoms in us that have been from the birth of stars. Like, why can't that be there? And why can't you feel it? You know, And, and I think that you might be able to. I don't know, but I think you might be able to.
0: Well, Cameron, certainly your skills, uh, your Mormon your Mormon skills from proselytizing are
2: not lost. Uh, definitely, I feel like I, I want to do it right now, as you've described it. So, yeah, that's super yeah. insightful. And, um, you know, I apologize for our ignorance because we're obviously uninitiated. But um, so with LSD specifically, you, you know, you, you describe it as uh, you're anchored to reality. And it's really just about dramatic perspective change.
1: Yeah. That sounds okay. accurate. Yeah. Anchored to reality and dramatic. Uh, yeah. And I put, I don't, I don't know how long we have to talk, but I put LSD into three simple ca- or four simple stages that you go through in taking LSD. I've kind of looked at them individually in the first stage, you know, you'd take LSD and you don't feel crap for like an hour and you're pretty sure you got robbed. <laughs> you're like, Oh, great. I just put a piece of paper in my mouth and it cost me, you know, 15 bucks. <laughs> um, and then, you know, me and, you know, uh, then all of a sudden you're like things, you start to feel uh, anxious and the way that I um, it's not a bad anxious. It's the anxious. Like if you're strapped into a roller coaster that you're kind of nervous about going on, cause it's really big and it's that clicking up the, the uh, right. It's the click, 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 click as you're looking things getting farther below you and you're getting to the top and you feel like, I'm strapped in. I might be scared to death, but I'm strapped in. There's no getting out of it now. And you start to feel that in stage two. That's the only way I can explain it. And it's not a bad feeling, just like being on a roller coaster is not a bad feeling, but it sure makes you feel alive, right? And that lasts about maybe 30 minutes. Uh, The next stage is complete, utter laughter. Like I've never laughed so hard. You'll wake up in the morning and your jaws will hurt. And it's almost like the person that you're tripping with, like if it's your wife or a friend that you really love, um, they will say things like, A a word long, they'll they'll say like, "Could you imagine if?" And it's almost like they don't even need to finish their sentences. You're so on the same level, and it's so funny to you that you you almost can't breathe. It feels like you're sucked in water. You're just laughing so hard in a beautiful, happy laugh. And then the next stage that lasts about an hour. And then the next stage is the stage where things start to shimmer and move slightly. And there, if you type in on Google, if you Google, you know, what does LSD look like or something, you'll find gifs or something that kind of show you what that is. It's not. It's not um, uh, demons jumping out of bushes type of <laughs> tripping, right? It's very, very natural. It Looks like someone took oil, like a colorful painted oil, and dumped it on a surface you're looking at, where it it barely shifts. It kind of just moves back and forth very slowly, to the point where if you're only on a hundred micrograms or two hundred micrograms, it might not even be noticeable unless you stop to focus on something. And the more you, that's the stage where I think you notice the movement different if you take more lsd if you take 400 micrograms that slight shifting of colors and 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 motion will be more exaggerated things might look more drippy or colorful and everything looks like you're looking through an hdr filter in adobe photoshop like it looks like everything's exaggerated by 20 percent. everything looks very 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 uh, vibrant if you if you look at your hands it kind of looks like like you're a magician or something and you can see like power kind of coursing through your hands it and and it looks really cool but you're never out of it mentally thinking that's the cool thing right you 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 know you look at it subjectively still even though you're you're messed up you look at it and go this is so cool that my brain is able to process this and make me really see my hand it looks like pulsating with magic for instance right like it just feels like like versus drinking alcohol where whenever you get messed up it it takes away all your inhibitors. It takes away all your reasonable, uh, reason uh, thinking. Um, all your reasonable mm-hmm. thinking. It takes away all your good decision making. You keep all those things on LSD. Anything you've read about someone taking LSD and jumping off a bridge or some some propaganda from the government and the se- it's all crap. It's no one no one kills themselves mm-hmm. on LSD. But what what but what you just kind of sit there in amazement at the things that you're seeing around you, and that's the second to last stage. Is this looking at you you'll stand in front of a picture on your wall that you've never seen before like you've seen on LSD and whatever LSD is out of your system the next morning you'll from that day on for the rest of your life you'll look at that piece of painting on your wall or that piece of art or whatever it is you decided to fumble on a look at a, a seashell or whatever it is you were looking at for 2 hours you'll look at it like you've never looked at it before for the rest of your life without another drug in your body it's changed your perspective on that item or that thing and then the very last stage would be um Complete. Depending on the amount you take, is a complete introspective look at yourself and who you are. It's one of those things where um, that's where your self reflection. That's where you who. That's where your deep thoughts, and it can kind of get um, scary a little bit if you're not prepared to look in a mirror deeply inside yourself and ask questions like, "Who I am and what am I doing here?" And, and if you're not a, a person that wants to see that, or it scares you. You know, it could be a little frightening. You might have to get up off your couch and move to a different room, or you might have to, you know, change up the environment you're in a little bit and go sit outside, lay under the sun, or something that makes you happier. Um, But it's this time where you'll think about things very deeply about yourself, self reflection. Um, And then that's the last stage. From that point, it slowly trickles off for a couple hours until you feel completely normal. You know, at one point you'll think to yourself, "Oh my god, am I ever going to get my brain back? Like it's been going for seven (laughs) hours." But you do, and you you um, you wait a little bit, and by and you feel great, and afterwards you feel amazing, and you feel like you've accomplished something. I, I, every time I've ever done LSD, I've learned something about myself that I haven't forgotten ever. Oh, right? right. I've, I've I've taken a lesson away from it that I've learned that I didn't learn on any other trip, and it, and it, and it's been, you know, it's been great. It's been great. It's been a really really fun ride with with LSD. You know, and and I say on average I take it maybe once every six months, maybe eight months to kind of realign myself and get my mind back in you know, where I want it to be. Another thing that people say is they call ego death, right? Ego death is where, you know, literally your ego that stands there. I forgot to mention this. This is a huge part of LSD. Every single day, your ego is built up. And some people's are different. Some people are very egotistical and others have a very small ego. Ego, But no one's going to want to, say, strip down naked and, and stand in the middle of the mall and let people look at you, right? They'll feel self-conscious or, you know, all those things that make you feel this, what society has put around you is you need to feel a certain way about something. You got to um, you got to keep up with the Joneses in your neighborhood and keep your, your, your lawn looking great. You have to be the guy at the party that makes everyone laugh. All those things go away whenever you take LSD. And it strips down to the point where you'd feel 100% comfortable talking to a friend and just crying in front of them. And you wouldn't feel weird about it at all. You'd, it'd feel totally natural. You'd feel happy to embrace it. And the next morning, and this is the cool thing about the lingering effects of LSD, the next morning you wake up, that's not going away it slowly diminishes. That's why every six months or a year, you'll do it again. But you'll feel like that for months and months and months. You'll feel more open with people and more, you know, it sounds like I'm peddling Herbalife. you know, like I'm some <laughs> salesman up here. But that's just my feeling and thoughts on it. That's just how I feel about no. it, you know? And it's one of those things where you can't, you can't explain it as much as you can until someone's experienced. it. It's really hard to to see what that's like, you know?
2: Yeah. Well sign me up. That sounds wonderful and powerful and eloquently <laughs> explained. Like, yeah, I really appreciate your time diving deep on that.
1: Yeah. And the article that I pasted for you, there is a very, it's actually a shorter version of what I just said. Um, and it kind of, it gives you a little bit of perspective on what I was just talking about. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. That is incredible. Um, definitely something that I think we will keep talking about and and talk more about especially as me and kenny as versions kind of go through th- this uh process together and and figure out you know uh, like you said earlier the, just the means to get it this the huge learning curve to actually get the substance yeah. is one thing and then of the yeah. course the experience in doing it so um
1: yeah and i will throw that as a as a a but don't try it. I'm not recommending it. Legal out legality thing, right? Like yeah. you can get in a lot of trouble ordering it, and you can you can have it seized at your door. You can you know uh, there's a lot of problems that can come. I don't believe that it should be illegal, and I think that it can only make this world a better place. But the laws we live under make it just as illegal as cocaine. Mm-hmm. So whenever you're deciding to do those things, be completely aware that you're breaking the law and and what that means to you. Um, I've had a lot of people reach out to me on Reddit and be like, hey, can you explain to me how to yeah, I don't know who they are. I don't know if they're the FBI chatting me up or anybody else. And it kind of is like, mm. be really careful. You know what I'm saying? Just be really careful down that path. I wish it wasn't that difficult, but it's it's not they don't make it easy, you know.
0: I mean, it really just sounds like to uh, you reinforcing for me, at least uh, a lot of these types of uh, breakthroughs or just the idea that you would have such a dramatic perspective shift from a substance you know, really for me, again, parallels the process of uh, therapy and self-discovery and all those things. Mm. And it kind of comes at a, uh, you know, immediate uh, pace instead of, parsed out through many, many sessions and, uh, things like that. But it also just gives people yeah. relief from who they are for a while. Uh, that was my first, you know, I, I'm fairly new to a marijuana, for example, and I only have done edibles. And my first thought when I was on that is, well, I can absolutely see how somebody with uh, large amounts of anxiety could, could want to take this all the time. So they could feel in a state where they're comfortable enough to go out into the world and be themselves. It's a really incredible thing. Um now I of course personally don't struggle from any of that. So for me it's just a laugh factory and you know maybe I feel a little tingly but um yeah. for them it could be easily something they have to take to feel normal to to be normal in their own skin. Well
1: my wife um you know I don't want to get too personal with with uh, her, talking for her but she doesn't drink alcohol and she only does pot and she's just um learned on her own through life that there's some things that um you know like like it, it's, it's sad that alcohol is accepted as it is, whatever the drugs out there that are so much less destructive and so much even the opposite of direct, uh, of destructive mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. beneficial, mind you, it sucks that they're they're looked at the way that they are because um she's completely gotten rid of alcohol in her life. And she just smokes. Uh, I call I, I, I say smoking in the pots. You know, she laughs at that. But <laughs> p- pretty much, you know, a handful of times a week, she smokes pot and she just um, it just chills her out. Um, anxiety goes down. She laughs a little bit more. No one's destructive. No one's doing anything inappropriate. It's just a, a, a way that like you said, it's a way to get the feeling of n- not being the individual you always have to be Mm-hmm. without being destructive and some people think that they need a lot of alcohol or a lot of drugs or a lot of whatever to feel that way but um it, you know i don't feel that i feel like psychedelics and potter in those those categories of the drugs that really just don't have a lot of downside anything has downsides mind you right you mm-hmm. can go to your doctor and get prescription du- drugs that i could list off a billion downsides so lsd and those drugs have those downsides also but you like we were talking about earlier stacking things up on a scale you got to put the positives against the negatives and. If there's two things I can think of that are negative about LSD, but there's 182 that I think are life-changing, well, I'm I'm taking the jump. Some people wouldn't because Mm -hmm. it's too risky, you know?
0: And that's not to say that any of these drugs are a shortcut to, you know, uh, self-improvement, self-realization, all that stuff. Um, You still have to do the work. It's just an ability for people to feel outside of themselves enough so they can look in and see exactly
1: what's going on. Oh, dude, that's a really good point that you made. That's a really, really good point. It's not going to solve problems in and of itself or even make you more. Uh, you're right. It's, it's the open door that allows you to handle those conversations and have those with yourself. Mm-hmm. And if it, it, taking LSD and the door flies open... No one's forced to go through it. You'll get done with the experience and maybe not think anything. You know, you have to take those lessons learned, and that's what I've done, and come out of those and self-reflect on them and what they mean for you, and then say, how am I going to make myself better because of these things? And if you don't, you're just open to the door. You're not going yeah. anywhere. And, you know, it's a good point.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting too in the counseling world. Usually, drugs are more or less things we assess for. We ask, you know, what prescriptions people are on, uh, are, and we look at it and view it more as a psychopathology more than anything, especially with drugs and marijuana. And we're we're just trying to see if these substances are helping somebody cope, and it's typically in a negative way. Um, But we're never, I don't think we've turned the page, or at least as far as I understand, there hasn't been a theory that's um, really focused on the other side of that. I can certainly see in the future if, especially as marijuana becomes more legalized, that there's a, you know, basically a marijuana-based therapy where... Where you'd get high and then have a session like that, Uh, because right now it's very much frowned upon.
1: So, you know, what's funny about that, Aaron, is if you go back and and you can dig this up on your on your own time, you know, when we get done whenever we whenever you have time. But if you go look at the studies, the the clinical studies done across the United States with LSD back in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't illegal. Right. Up until I don't remember the exact date that it was that it was made, you know, somewhere in the Reagan administration or something. But um, this was being used as a complete therapy session tool for many, 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 many years before it was uh, scheduled to class one. Um, You know, and you can go to this day and look up that information. You can go look at those those sessions and you can look at the statistics and and you it's so, you know, right now, because LSD has been or psychedelics have been illegal for so long for us, it feels like, you know, I I'm from the eighties, man. Right. I, I think of LSD and I thought of this is your brain. And then the, the, <laughs> the egg cracks on MTV and it goes, it sizzles and it goes, this is your brain on drugs. And he questions. And then it shows some kid poking his eyes out, you know, on <laughs> LSD that, that that's what you, you're, that's in me. I'm ai I was a kid. I watched that stuff. But if you came from the generations before that, and you were lucky enough to live in that, that, area where it wasn't illegal. And you could go to a clinic, a legal clinic hooked onto the side of your uh, of your Kmart and have a session where they dim the lights and they play the music and they and someone walks you through your trip. This happened thousands and thousands and thousands of times and the, the research is out there and all of it is good research. And it was literally stopped overnight. It was stopped overnight. And so that has been done. And we've reverted back to this more dogmatic, archaic way of looking at those things. Now it's all scary to everybody, you know, um, man, you're, you're right in the right profession, you know, to be looking into that stuff and how there needs to be someone on the forefront, man, I'm in a computer. So I've already gone too far down my life down this rabbit hole. But if I was younger, I would completely be researching how these things can be used to make people's life better, to relieve them of their fears, to help their relationships, to help with PTSD it needs to be looked at. And it is, it's just very slow because of the, the loopholes that are out there right now. Right.
2: Yeah. Hey, one thing I want to ask you, um, have you ever, or would you ever consider Cameron, uh, using LSD again in a flotation tank, uh, sensory deprivation type environment?
1: Yeah, I would. I, I most certainly would. I thought about that, except the part is like, you don't get on Amazon and order a, uh, you know, a tank for your house to lay in, you know, uh, I don't know really know how to make that happen, but I would totally. And I'm a little bit more adventurous than your average dude, I think. So I don't know if it's this. My uh, I'm pretty optimistic about what I can get from things like that. I I feel that there's something to be learned. It doesn't scare me as much. Um, and I'm a scuba diver, so I love to. I love the water anyway. I would love to be in a deprivation tank and and trip on LSD. I'd be I'd be trep I'd be trepidatious at going into it, but I would still love to do it absolutely.
2: Yeah, we'll do some googling. You know, I, I I've done it before and um, it, as it turns out, there are quite a number of, um, you know, small facilities, usually like a massage therapy business or something would have these. Yeah. So there, there are more of them out there than you think. Um, you know, you can float for something like 60 bucks an hour.
1: Yeah. So my concern would be with LSD, like you can be really paranoid the first time you do it, and that's something I should have mentioned. The very first time we did it with my wife, and I told you about all those beautiful things that happened. Well, about ten minutes before that, I was army crawling through my house uh, because <laughs> someone knocked on my door, and I was certain the CIA was there to drag me to freaking some <laughs> some camp somewhere. Like I was certain. So there's there's paranoia, and I kind of look at that where if you put yourself in situations where everything around you is normal and comfortable, you're going to have a lot better time. I would never recommend for myself or someone else to do an LSD and like be in an area that you don't know the people around you. You don't know, um, you know, just anything that's uncomfortable or like I would never pay someone 60 bucks and go lay in a public area like that and be like, I'm going to trip on LSD for X amount of time and then have to figure out how I'm going to get home. It would scare the the hell out of me. Um, but man, I sure would like to build something or have someone, if, if those were private, I don't know. You know, it's like, it would be awesome to try, but I don't know how to do it where I can still feel like I'm in the comfort of my home, you know, or in or in the or in nature or somewhere safe, anywhere safe, not a public place. That's
0: very wise. Good points. Excellent, excellent. So, um, you know, I, Cameron, I really appreciate all your time uh, today, and um, I'm just wondering if there's any. Final thoughts um, about uh, Mormonism, about uh, your experiences with drugs. Uh, actually, Mormonism specifically. I was uh, one question that I I was going to ask you, and I, I'm trying. And I think whoever we interview, I'd like to ask them as a kind of a closing question: is if you could change anything about your experience growing up. Um, basically, it sounds like from what you've told me, it was mostly positive. But I'm just wondering if there's anything if you could change that you would. Uh, And if so, what would that be?
1: From the perspective of life, yes, just everyone makes mistakes with stuff. But as far as religion goes, I don't think so. uh, I was lucky enough, and I think this is really rare, where I was able to get the good things that religion offers, like what we talked about not having in our lives now, right? Some of that community, um, a little bit of a moral compass that I don't think comes from religion, but it's really enforced with religion. And just... Helping your neighbor out and going over and, and giving service to people. And like I got all that stuff before I believed in what I was doing, you know, like as a kid growing up, where it was just normal. You go to potlucks and you, everyone brings a dish and y'all love each other and the neighbor needs something and we'll go mow his lawn for free. Or, those type of things were very common in my childhood. So I was extremely lucky. And whenever I got to the point where I was turning into adulthood and I stopped feeling that way, I had already gotten the benefits of what I think the good things that come from religion are. Hmm. So I don't really know if there's anything. I, I, I pretty much it was as good as it could be. Right. Beautiful, loving family. It was all good. There was no bad experiences like that. So not really. I think from the religion standpoint, I got really, really lucky, man. Excellent. I'm glad I'm glad I'm at where I'm glad of where I'm at, but I'm glad I have the perspective where I came from. You know.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I mostly feel the same way. That I, especially in, because Orlando is fairly liberal place, and all most of the religion I've run up against is fairly liberal and pretty passive. Uh, but just to have the perspective that, you know, at some point I believed in this thing that's completely not real, but it was real to me, and uh, to have that, and and some people who just didn't have that at all. Um, I certainly have friends who were complete or atheists from the beginning, and. I don't know. It's it's not that, at least in my experience with them, it's it's not that their imagination lacked, but it's like they really legitimately couldn't wrap their head around it. And I'm really glad that I can wrap my head around it because mm-hmm. um, you really, to understand, I mean, this is, we're still talking about, you know, 85, 90% of the country, right? So this is a lot of people who really have these actual beliefs that they actually believe that these things are, are real or were real or whatever. Mm-hmm. So
1: isn't that crazy to you? I don't know if it's because I don't talk to about religion to the people I surround myself with every day. They kind of know where I'm at. So it kind of gets you know, put off the, the burner. Um, but it's crazy to me that there's that, still that many people. To me, it seems so common and natural to not believe in those things. Mm-hmm. That whenever you throw out statistics, I know those are accurate. You know those large number of American population, and if we talk about the world even more, right? We're completely are completely into the into this belief that um, is all consuming in one way or another is consuming or, or affecting their lives. And to me, I just it's so natural not to feel any of that or have that that burden on my shoulders.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, it's a strange phenomenon. To just to be able to sympathize with that mindset, I think is really important That's for me a part of this uh, journey and, and especially making a podcast and having this be some of the subject matters is really, really important that we don't like completely forget that mindset and that that ideology because it's so prevalent in our society and and of course. You know, like especially for you, Cameron, you your family is still very much a part of it. So to relate to them, you really have to, uh, at least uh, at some degree, put your mind back into that mold. You know, to to kind of understand where people are coming from.
1: Yeah, and you know what? We all need to be more like that, though. That's a that's a good thing. I think that mm-hmm. the best trait that humans can have is empathy. And if any any time you can put yourself in someone else's perspective or situation, and and maybe not agree with it, but under but understand it as well as you can. And if you don't understand it, be okay with it. Right? It's not affecting me, and I'm okay with this these things. I think that empathy is so important. I constantly tell people if there's one thing you can be more of, be more empathetic. You know how many how many less wars would we have? How many, you know? everyone, we got to get all of our leaders together and throw them in a room with a bunch of LSD and, and have them be more empathetic and solve all of our problems quickly. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Amen. Amen, brother.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Again, uh, Cameron, thank you so much for your time and your deep thoughts. And Aaron, thank you for wrangling Cameron up from Reddit. I think it's crazy cool that we live in a time where we can just sync up with minimal effort with someone a couple thousand miles away and have a conversation as as full and deep as this one. Uh, so thank you both
1: yeah absolutely it was a pleasure being here i love talking about these things and thanks for the invite guys
0: all right well that's going to do it for this episode of things we think about um check out cameron's post in the our description in our show notes and uh all right we'll take care guys thanks
1: if you enjoyed the podcast remember to like and
0: subscribe to our youtube channel you can find more things we think about discussion on reddit at r slash we think about if you're interested in contributing to the show our patreon information is available in the description of the podcast as well as on any of our youtube videos